Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the third Sunday in Advent. That's December 11th, 2022. And this week, the Gospel reading for Sunday is Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 15. It begins, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, the question is pretty evident. The question is, is Jesus in fact the Messiah, or has John been pointing to the wrong guy? The big question is, who is actually asking the question? Is it John who wonders and sends his disciples to ask Jesus since John is in prison? Or do John's disciples have the question, so John says, go ask Jesus yourself? In other words, is it John who doubts? Or is it his disciples who doubt that Jesus is in fact the Christ? For many years in the early church, the early church fathers held that it couldn't be John because he's John the Baptist, and John the Baptist would would never doubt that Jesus is the Christ, and so it must be his disciples who are asking. And certainly the early church fathers are to be respected. Often they're right, they're closer to the source than we are, and And we've had more time to mess things up than they have. At the same time, though, the simplest understanding of this question, since it's John who does the sending, is that John is the one asking the question because John is the one who has doubts. And furthermore, when Jesus answers the disciples, he doesn't say, I say to you. He says, go and tell John. So as far as we know, it is John the Baptist who doubts and wonders if Jesus is the Christ. And that's significant, but it's, it's no great scandal. Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah all voiced doubts and hesitancy in God's will and, and, and sometimes frustration at God's ideas so, or the way God worked. So it, it shouldn't surprise us that John the Baptist, too, has some doubts if Jesus is the Christ. After all, remember what John has preached about Jesus. He said things like, After me comes one whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the one who will be the judge of all on the last day. He's preached a Christ who has great power. Nevertheless, Even though Jesus has great power, as John has testified, here is John suffering in prison. And so he sends his disciples with the question, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, the one who is to come is not a a real popular or oft-used term for the Messiah. 
But it does refer to Psalm 118, which is about the Messiah, and, and the verse that the Palm Sunday crowds pick up on, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So John's question is, are you the Christ? Are you the one who comes in the name of the Lord to save us? So we read in, in Matthew 11, verse 4, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So to the question, are you the Christ? The answer is an emphatic yes. But Jesus doesn't just say, yes, of course I am. If he said that, he'd be right. He'd just be verifying himself. And he would speak the word of the Lord because he is the Lord. But note what Jesus does. He points the disciples, and John to the scriptures. Just as he would point us to the scriptures today to learn about him, he tells the disciples of John and John himself to look back at the Old Testament scriptures to see if what Jesus is doing is what the Old Testament said he would do. So Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, <clears throat> many of these miracles that Jesus lists here are foretold in just one prophecy, and that's a prophecy from Isaiah 35, which includes verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah declared that the Messiah would perform all these miracles. Jesus is performing all of these miracles. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus also says that the dead are raised up, which is an act of God. And then he says the poor have good news preached to them. And then he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, why would he say that? Probably because of Isaiah 61 verse 1. Because there Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will preach good news to the poor. Jesus preaches good news to the poor, therefore he's the Messiah. But Isaiah 61 verse 1 also says that the Messiah proclaims liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So the Messiah sets the captives, the prisoners, free from prison. And here's John the Baptist in prison. So John could easily be offended because if the Messiah comes to set the prisoners free, why is he not free? 
And so Jesus declares to John and to his disciples, in effect, I am the Messiah, but I act in my time on my schedule. Blessed are you if you trust and are not offended by me and, 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 and my will. See, it's absolutely true that Jesus heals the blind during his ministry, but he doesn't heal all the blind. He makes the deaf hear, but he doesn't make all the deaf hear. While he sets captives free, namely those captive to, to sin, death, and devil in the grave, he doesn't set all the prisoners free. John the Baptist could easily be offended, along with his disciples, that he's still imprisoned if they don't understand that. So Jesus says to them that he is the Messiah and also warns them not to try to bend his will to what they desire. This is also true for us. We hear that Christ has borne our sins and our afflictions to the cross, and therefore we are set free of them. And guess what? We still sin, and we're still afflicted. Does that mean that, uh, that Jesus is wrong when he declares that we are free? It doesn't, because that freedom will be fully realized on the last day. For now... That freedom is a gift, but not realized. I sometimes use the example of, of a, a, a child who receives a great inheritance that's put in a trust until he reaches a certain age. Throughout his childhood, that inheritance is his, but he doesn't have it yet until he reaches, what, his 21st birthday or whatever. So it is for you and me. We are free from sin and death. We are free from, uh, from affliction because they're not our master anymore. And that inheritance of life and salvation is ours, but we're just not quite there yet. Nevertheless, it's ours in Christ through our baptism. Picking up with verse 7 of Matthew chapter 11, as they, John's disciples, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God was at work. And God told his people how he was at work by means of the prophets. God would send certain men as his appointed prophets to declare to the people what God had done, to declare to the people what God was doing, and sometimes what God would do in the future. And so the people knew that God was at work within history for their salvation. 
Jesus now declares that John is a prophet, which means John is there to declare what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in the future. You've seen this already as John declares that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. That's what God has done. He has promised he is coming. You have heard John declare that that, uh, God is at work at the present time because he points to Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you've heard John prophesy what Jesus will do in the future, namely... Baptize all with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Judge the living and the dead on the, on the last day. So in this section, Jesus declares that John is a prophet, but more than a prophet. So first off, he has these rhetorical questions to the crowd concerning John. You know, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in soft clothing? It's not why he went to the wilderness to see some man who, who wavers and, and, uh, and, and flip-flops from one opinion to another. You went out into the wilderness to hear John because you knew he was a prophet, because you knew he was declaring the word of God. But, says Jesus, he was more than a prophet. He's a very special prophet because John the Baptist, the prophet, is the fulfillment of prophecy. In the very last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi 3, verse 1, the Lord declares, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And in Malachi chapter 4, that prophet is identified as Elijah. And here Jesus says, John is not just one more prophet in in the long line. He is the prophet prophesied by the prophet Malachi to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. Now, Jesus goes on to say this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Three big, powerful truths in these last four verses that Jesus says, last five verses that Jesus says in this text. First off, he says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist because he is the prophesied prophet of Malachi 3. But then Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? Possibly, Jesus is speaking of himself. Because technically, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven can be the one who is not in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, by taking our sins upon himself at the cross, 
is the one who suffers all God's wrath, suffers hell for our sins, and there he is outside the kingdom of heaven because he is the one enduring hell for us. So Jesus here could be saying, although John is the greatest, or there is no one greater than John the Baptist, born of of women, yet I am greater because I am the Messiah. That's one possibility. The other one is this, and that is that, uh, that although it is great to be John the Baptist, the least in the kingdom of heaven is any believer who believes in Jesus, who acknowledges his sin and unworthiness, but still trusts that he's, he's saved because Christ dies for him. So think of Paul saying that he is, is the worst of sinners, kind of the least in the kingdom of God. It is That one is greater than John the Baptist's prophet because the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven has salvation. Not that John the Baptist doesn't. What I mean is this. Um, there, there's a passage in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out his disciples to, to preach the kingdom of God and to perform miracles. And, and the, uh, the disciples come back overjoyed saying, you know, even the demons obey us when we proclaim your name. And, and, and Jesus says to them, um, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Uh, nevertheless, rejoice not that you have power over demons, but that your name is written in heaven. So it's great to be an apostle like the disciples. It's great to be a prophet like John the Baptist. But far better, it's greater to have your name written in heaven in the book of life. Because that means that you have salvation, as did the disciples and the prophets, including John the Baptist. So this is a word of comfort to the people. Yes, John the Baptist is great. He's a man to, to, uh, to thank God for. He's a man to admire for his service. He's an example to follow in his steadfastness. But if you're not a prophet imprisoned by Herod, but simply trust in Jesus... Blessed are you, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. All right, that's the first thing Jesus says in, in, in verses 11 through 15. The next thing he says is this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. Kind of a, a tricky bit of... of, of um, of Greek, actually, but this goes with the first part. Remember how John could be offended by Jesus, because here Jesus is is the uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and yet John is still in prison. Just wait, says Jesus, because the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and soon the king himself will suffer violence. And so, even though John the Baptist is imprisoned, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't the Christ. And even when Jesus is crucified, it doesn't mean that he's not the Christ. Rather, this is how the King of Heaven saves people to bring them into the Kingdom of Heaven. So, he says to that crowd and to you and me, do not be offended When the Christ is crucified, do not be offended when the church suffers violence or persecution. 
because the Christ is still at work to save his people. Finally, the third point in these, in these last uh, five verses is in 13 and 14, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, Jesus quoted Malachi 3 before. Now he refers to Malachi 4 and says, just to be absolutely clear, John the Baptist is the new Elijah who was to come, sent by God, just before the Messiah arrives. Why does Jesus say that? Because the conclusion, the next conclusion is obvious. If John the Baptist was the last prophet before the Messiah, and he pointed to Jesus, then Jesus is the Messiah they've all been waiting for. So this is a marvelous gospel lesson of Jesus um, revealing himself to be the Messiah um, as early as Matthew 11 in this case. But it's also a a reminder to you and me that, that he is in fact the Christ, and yet we still face trouble in this life, even as he faced trouble. But do not be dismayed, for as he rose from the dead, so he will deliver us from trouble and raise us from the dead too. And now with that look, then a quick, a quick look at Isaiah 35. That's the Old Testament lesson for Advent 3. And, and Isaiah 35 is chosen because it contains one of those prophecies to which Jesus refers in Matthew chapter 11. It includes those verses, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. But the Old Testament lesson is longer than that, so, so let's look at the whole thing really quite briefly here. One of the great contrasts in, uh, in the Old Testament especially is the contrast between the wilderness and the Garden of Eden. When God creates the heavens and the earth, it is all good, it's all perfect, and within this perfect creation, God creates the Garden of Eden as a home for Adam and Eve and for their children. And when Adam and Eve fall into sin, they are cast out of the garden into this creation that's falling apart. And what do you get with an untended creation that's falling apart? You get wilderness. You get get desert. You get trouble. When God delivers Israel out of Egypt... And, and takes them to the promised land, they pass through the wilderness and then into the promised land. And the promised land is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And the reason it's described that way is because the promised land is a symbol of the Garden of Eden. As God once created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden as his chosen people. Now God is delivering his chosen people, Israel, into the promised land to remind them that God will send his son, the Messiah, to deliver all of his people, both Jew and Gentile, 
into the, 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 the new garden of Eden, which is the kingdom of heaven. The original garden of Eden was called paradise. Remember what Jesus says to the robber on the cross, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the Garden of Eden is is a symbol of of heaven. The promised land is a symbol of of the Garden of Eden and and of, of, of the promised land of heaven for us. And the wilderness is, is emblematic of the world in which we live, a place afflicted by sin, so it's, it's out of order. And here we are, and we're only passing through. With all that, then, Isaiah 35 uses some wilderness and garden language to declare the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So starting at verse 1, "...the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad." The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So you may have seen pictures before of a desert that's just barren, and then it rains, and wildflowers pop up for a day or two, and then the sun, the sun scorches them, and they're gone again. So, so picture this, this, this forsaken land. It's, it's dry, deserted wilderness. There's been no rain. There is no life there. But then all of a sudden, it's sprouting and blossoming and full of green and life and, 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 and song. And it's not the rain that does this. It's not the coming rain It's the coming of the Messiah. The glory of the Lord appears. Because remember, when when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. That's because Jesus is God in the flesh on earth. He is the glory of the Lord here. So because the Messiah comes and, and, and redeems the wilderness, he, he's moving us back from the, the forsaken, disordered desert back. He's taking us back to the Garden of Eden, if you will. Then Isaiah encourages his hearers and says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, there's quite the plot twist. God is coming, and of course, God who is holy will judge the sinner. And Isaiah says, as as the wilderness blooms, as, as the Christ comes, he comes with vengeance. He comes with the recompense of God, and that should leave sinners quaking in their boots. But Isaiah says, no, 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 no. The Christ comes to save you. He will judge his enemies, but first he comes with grace to save you. How will you know that the Messiah has come? Here are these prophecies. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. 
In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So Jesus comes and performs these miracles. And again, not all the blind are made to see, but a lot are. And not all the deaf are made to hear, but a lot do. And so it's as if Eden, paradise, is starting to break back into this forsaken creation because Christ is here restoring paradise, if you will. And so as, as, as a, few blind signif- a few blind people are healed signify that the Christ has come back, so then we have this picture of, of the desert starts to turn green and fertile again because in Christ, paradise will be restored. Can we get there? Verse 8, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So there is a way to heaven. It's called the way of holiness. And you know the way of holiness. This is Jesus who says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one unclean goes on this way because either they they reject Jesus or Jesus cleanses them. Even if they are fools, they trust in him. They have salvation. And so Jesus is the way to heaven for, for all who trust in him. And so the, those who trust in him are, are the redeemed who are saved. They are the ones who are ransomed and they have everlasting joy because Christ is their way to everlasting life. And then this passage ends with the news that sorrow and sighing shall flee away, which looks forward to Revelation 21 verse 4, that marvelous description of, of eternal life where uh, there's no more sighing and no more tears and no more pain for those are are former things that have passed away. And all of that is opened up for us by the Christ you read about in Matthew 11, who performs those miracles that show that he is the Messiah on his way to the cross to die for our sins. So never be offended by the Savior, even in your affliction, But look forward to the day when sorrow and sighing flee away, for Christ has redeemed you by his blood, and he will raise you from the dead. All right, that concludes our look at the Gospel and Old Testament readings for the third Sunday in Advent. God bless you in your further meditations on this text. God grant you every good gift if you are teaching this text to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.